Amen. All right, you may be seated. In our elders' meetings for the last several months, we have been uh, deliberating about which book to preach next, and some of the questions that we asked were, well, what does our church need to hear most? What is happening in the world today? What does the world need to hear? And what book can satisfy both of those questions? And that's why we landed on Exodus. Why is Exodus so relevant right now? Well, because Exodus opens with a seemingly hopeless, desperate, dark moment, and it tempts us to conclude, well, nothing can be done. One author noted, Exodus involves a dispute between two radically different worldviews, and every aspect of civilization was at stake. If you don't understand that, as we are opening up the book of Exodus, it might seem unintelligible to you. The children of Israel were in absolute distress and affliction and misery. Evil was consuming everything good that was on the earth. And then Jehovah, the author of history, the Lord of lords, the King of kings, the God of the covenant, appears on the scene and everything changes. He is the God who was there. He's the God that's always there. The children of Israel didn't need a, a, a better army than Egypt. They simply needed to know and believe the God who was there. A.W. Tozer once said, the man who comes to a right belief about God is relieved of 10,000 temporal problems. I would just add to that what uh, Solomon said. He says the person who has a right belief about God, he can look at the future and laugh. Proverbs 31, 25. When was the last time that you did that? You're sitting down, you're meditating on what's coming in the future, and you just start laughing at days to come. What enables a person to laugh at the future? They know who their God is. Tozer continues, he says, the first step downward for any church or any civilization is taken when it surrenders its high opinion of God. She simply gets a wrong answer to the question, what is God like? Listen, if there is a downgrade in the church today, if there is a downgrade in our own hearts, is it possible that we've simply gotten the wrong answer to the question, what is God like? There is no reason for any Christian on earth to despair about the future, about tomorrow, about a year from now, about four years from now. Why is that? Why can I say that? Is it because I know the future? No. It's because I know who God is. 
He's the God of Exodus. This is the God who turned the river of the Nile into blood. Who do you know that can summon gnats and cause frogs to cover the land? Who do you know that can part the sea and make bread rain from the heavens? That's the same God who's with us today. And so this morning, what I would like to do is I'd like to just look at five axioms, five indestructible truths that we discover about God as we look through the book of Exodus. So let's begin together. First is the God of history, the God of history. And here's our first axiom. God is the author of history, past, present, future, and nothing can undo what he has written in the story. God is the author of history. Nothing can undo what he has written in the story. Please turn with me to Genesis chapter 15. Now, Genesis chapter 15 is the place where God made his covenant with Abraham. Starting in verse 12 in Genesis 15, this is what we read. As the sun was going down, a deep, sorry, this is starting in verse 12. Genesis 15, verse 12. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterward they shall come out with great possession. So keep those three things in mind. God promised Abraham that his descendants, the the sons of his grandson Israel, would three things would happen to them. That they would be afflicted for 400 years, that, they would, that Egypt would be punished as a result, and that Israel would come out with great possessions. So now let's see the historical fulfillment of this. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 12, starting in verse 40. So how long was Israel afflicted in Egypt? Exodus chapter 12, verse 40. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. Now, quickly, one explanation, possible explanation for the discrepancy of the 400 years versus the 430 is that God was simply rounding in Genesis and a more precise time is given here. That happens all the time in Scripture. At any rate, this fulfills the first um, historical fact that God told Abram that they, his descendants, would be in the land for 400 years. Secondly, turn to Exodus chapter 10, verse 7. Now here, they've already, the, the Egyptian servants have already gotten a taste of the plagues, and so they're begging Pharaoh to let Israel go. Why? End of verse 7. Do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? God, in the end, destroyed their land 
destroyed their army, and cut off their firstborn. So this fulfills the second historical fact that God would punish Egypt. Thirdly, turn to Exodus chapter 12, verse 36. When Israel left the land of Egypt, what did they leave with? Exodus chapter 12, verse 36. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus, they plundered the Egyptians. So these slaves left Egypt rich. That fulfills the third thing that God told Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. So here's the question. What do we do with these facts? Is God just a really good fortune teller? He just can, can see what's going to happen in the future. And he says, oh, and then this, and then this. Children, boys and girls, I know that some of you like to write your own stories. And some of you may even want to be authors when you grow up. So here's a, a, a question for you. If you are writing your own story... How do you know what the ending is? Is it because you can look into the future and see what the ending should be? No, you know what the ending is because you write it. You write the ending. The story is your own creation. History, the past, present, and the future, is the story that God wrote. It's History is literally his story. Several times in the Exodus account, an event occurs, and then immediately after that event, we read, just as the Lord has said. So Exodus 7.13, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, just as the Lord has said, just as he wrote it into the story. The Westminster Confession of Faith says this in chapter 3. God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely, unchangeably ordain whatever comes to pass. And although God knows whatsoever may or can come to pass, yet hath he hath not decreed it because he foresaw it as future. So in other words, God doesn't decree the future because he sees it. He can tell you what the future is because he writes it. God wrote history. Consider how the unbelieving world understands the philosophy of history. This is a very profound thing. There are two prevailing theories of how history unfolds. The first view is the pagan view of history, the pagan view of history. The pagan view of history is that history is simply cyclical, like, like the seasons. Well, now there's summer, and then there's fall, and then there's winter, and then there's spring. I could do that all by myself. And then it starts over again, right? Um, and so if you've lived long enough, uh, the philosopher Marcus Aurelius said, if you've lived long enough by your 40th year, you've already seen everything. G.K. Chesterton said, um, 
that it is fitting that Buddha be pictured with his eyes closed because there is nothing new to see. The second view of history is the evolutionary view of history. The evolutionary view of history is that history, mankind is making progress, humanity on its own merit through technology and science, apart from any interference of God, is improving. Give it enough time and we'll eventually evolve into a perfect society. That's the mantra of the evolutionary view of history. Now, both of those views actually explain the chaos of modern culture today. The pagan view explains why some people are becoming increasingly hopeless. They just throw up their hands and say, I'm not getting off this train. It's just going to continue to to cycle. Why even try? The evolutionary view explains why others are becoming more and more militant. Well, if we could just get rid of those undesirables, then we will usher in this perfect society. Perhaps you're here this morning and you're, you're not a Christian. My question to you is, how do you view history? Do you view the events of this world as a meaningless collection? Or do you believe that there is inevitable progress, not because of God, but because, well, we're eventually going to just evolve into this perfect culture? Don't you know that the reason why Pharaoh was so tyrannical in the book of Exodus, is because he had a wrong view of history. Tyranny is the necessary fruit of a society that separates God from history. Pharaoh didn't believe God was the author or director of history. He believed that he could act however he wanted, and it led to his tyranny, and in the end, it led to his ruin. You see, the the book of Exodus is actually a paradigm of all of history. So dear unbelieving friend, hear this, that those who stand against the Lord of history will be crushed as Pharaoh did, but those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved as the Israelites. That brings us to our second point, God over every kingdom. Our second axiom is this, God reigns absolutely over every individual, every nation, and every so-called God. God reigns absolutely over every individual, every nation, and over every so-called God. Now, we've already heard how God reigns over the individual. He was the one that hardened Pharaoh's heart, Exodus seven thirteen. But consider further how God reigns over every nation. Please turn with me to Exodus chapter 4, verses 22 through 23. Exodus 4, 22 through 23. This is what God tells Moses to tell Pharaoh. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord... Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go, 
that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Turn quickly to chapter 5, verse 1. After Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. Turn to chapter 10, verse 3. Chapter 10, verse 3. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. Now, what is happening in all of these verses? What kind of speech is this? These are imperatives. They are commands from the Lord to the king of Egypt, to the king of Egypt. God is telling Pharaoh what to do. And this is just as as offensive in the 15th century BC as it is today. Listen, Egypt had its own government. They had their own laws. They didn't worship the God that Israel served. In fact, look at chapter 5, verse 2 again. Pharaoh said... Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. In other words, what Pharaoh is saying is, I am not subject to Israel's gods. Egypt has its own gods. Now get away from me. So what does God do? He sends the 10 plagues. But these plagues were not random events. They're not just cool things. These plagues were specifically leveled against each of Egypt's gods. Quickly, turn with me to Numbers chapter 33. making the claim that these plagues were specifically leveled against the gods of Egypt. And here Moses in Numbers 33 is retelling Israel's departure from Egypt. So look halfway through verse 3. Numbers 33, verse 3. On the day after the Passover, the people of Israel went out triumphantly in the sight of all the Egyptians, while the Egyptians were burying all their firstborn whom the Lord had struck down among them. On their gods also the Lord executed judgments. When did that happen? That was the plagues. The plagues were judgments against each one of Egypt's gods. So when God turned the Nile River into blood in Exodus chapter 7, 14 through 25. He was showing his power over Canum, the God and guardian of the Nile. When God covered the land with frogs in Exodus chapter 8, uh, 8 verses 1 through 15, he was showing his power over the goddess Hopi, the goddess of frogs. When God covered the Egyptians with boils in Exodus 9, 8 through 12, he was showing his power over Imhotep, the 
the God of healing. So all of these plagues, the gnats, the flies, the disease on the cattle, the hail, the locusts, the darkness, were direct assaults against the gods of Egypt. So the plagues were God's answer to Pharaoh's question, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? And God answers, I am the only true and living God. So how do we take these truths and make them apply to us today in in 2022? We must see that God is the Lord over every nation. He demands the obedience of the nations today just as he did in Pharaoh's time. Part of the problem is is that we have grown up, all of us in this room have grown up our whole lives hearing the same sort of pluralism that Pharaoh told Moses. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? You have your truth, your God. I have my truth, my God. And that secular catechism has been repeated so many times that many Christians have just started to believe it. Well, we'll just do um, church in our little building over here and let the nation alone because they worship a different God. That's a lie. That's actually pluralism. Do you realize that Governor Little is required to obey the voice of the Lord? Uh, The Boise School District Board of Trustees is required to obey the voice of the Lord. The bowling club in Garden City is required to obey the voice of the Lord. The United Nations is required to obey the voice of the Lord. NASCAR racers are required to obey the voice of the Lord. Congress is required to obey the voice of the Lord. Don't you see, Exodus teaches us why nations fall. The judgment of God. Nations fall today because like Pharaoh, nations say, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? So loved ones, I I exhort you. If you have subtly believed the lie of pluralism, then change your mind. God did not stop commanding the nations um, since Christ has come into the world. If anything, the obligations on the nations have increased. Jesus said in Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, disciple the nations. And what this means for the church today is that just as Moses was a mouthpiece to Pharaoh, so the church is a mouthpiece to the world. The church, the church is not meant to be a bunker that we hide behind. It's meant to be an aircraft carrier with tomahawk missiles flying out with gospel proclamation all over the world. It's meant to be a place where we aim not only at individual conversion, but where we seek to breathe everything under the lordship of the true and living God. Well, Pastor Josh, where do I start with that? How do I begin that comprehensive vision of the world? Well, it's it's fairly simple. Start at home. 
with, with family worship, the first thing that you need to do is bring the lordship, bring your family under the lordship of the true and living God. If you, if you don't do it there, you probably won't do it anywhere. That's really the first mark of discipleship is family worship in the home. It's not a pietistic exercise. It's an exercise of dominion, bringing that small influence of little soldiers or little lambs or whatever analogy you want under Christ in regular, habitual family worship. If, if you do that, loved ones, your home will turn the world upside down. It'll, it'll invigorate the church. Next, God of covenant. Our third axiom. Everything that God does in history and the nations flow from his covenant of grace. Everything that God does in history and in the nations flow from his covenant of grace. If someone were to ask you, what is the meaning of history? How would you answer that? How, how does history move? What, not, I mean, we, we already talked about how God is the author of it, but what is motivating God? Children, boys and girls, I would argue that you should imagine history like one of those ginormous redwood trees in California. Have you guys ever seen those? Anybody ever been to the redwoods in California? I have not. I, I, they look big. Um, imagine that everything you see above the ground is a timeline of the world. So the, the trunk is... The ancient world and the branches are the modern world. The question is, is what's under the ground? What are the roots? What are the roots of history? Why does that tree, history, grow the way that it does? The biblical answer is covenant. The roots of the tree are covenant. In the book of Genesis, all the roots are exposed. So God covenanted with Adam and Eve, promising that he would send a man who would slay the serpent. Genesis 3.15. Later, God covenanted with Abraham, promising that that man would come from his family line. Genesis 22.18. And then this one covenant of grace that began with Adam and progressed through Abraham finds its branches coming up in Exodus. Look, look with me at, at Exodus chapter 2, verses 23 through 24. Here, Moses gives us the reason why God rescued Israel. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. Covenant is the reason God rescued them. In fact, every action in this book flows from covenant. Look at chapter 3, verse 6. God introduces himself to Moses 
via covenant. He said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. That's covenantal language. Look with me at chapter 6, verse 2. This is when God promised to deliver them out of Egypt on the basis of covenant. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. That's the covenant of grace in one sentence. Turn to chapter 19, verse 5. When God delivers them out of Egypt, what is the first thing that he does? He enters into a national covenant with them. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. One more place, Exodus 32, 12 through 14. This was when the Israelites were waiting down at the base of the mountain. Moses was on the top and they turned and they made a golden calf to worship. Why didn't God destroy them? Because of covenant. Look at 32, starting in verse 12, end of verse 12, Moses prays, turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Exodus presents to us a God who is a covenant keeper. So how do we apply this today? Well, first, let's just examine ourselves. Dear believer, is your God the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, is that the God that you believe in? Can you say, I serve the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob? And if you don't know the answer to that, then listen to what Paul says in Galatians 3, 29. If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. If you are in Christ, you're Abraham's kids. If you're in Christ, you are an heir of the promise, the covenant. I believe that so many Christians today struggle with their assurance of salvation simply because they don't see that their position in Christ is covenantal. Which means that your salvation, loved ones, is doubly secure. First, you... you, you're secure in Christ because what he's done for you. He became a curse for you on the tree. And secondly, you're secure because he made a solemn oath in the covenant of grace. Listen to how the larger catechism puts it. Question 79. Can true believers 
by the reason of their imperfections and the many sins they are overtaken with fall away from the state of grace. True believers, by the reason of the unchangeable love of God and his covenant and their inseparable union with Christ are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. Believers, you are doubly secure because of Christ and because of covenant. That means that though you have been unfaithful to him, he will remain faithful to you. The God of Exodus is a covenant keeper. Next, God and his Christ. Our fourth axiom, the story God writes in Exodus is ultimately a story about Christ. The story that God writes in Exodus is ultimately a story about Christ. Jesus himself tells us this. In the New Testament, John 5, 45 through 46, when speaking to the Jews, he says this, if you believed Moses, you would believe me because he wrote about me. Moses wasn't merely recording history when he wrote Exodus. When he wrote Exodus, he was also prophesying. History in Exodus is both historical facts, and prophetic language. Here's the low-hanging fruit. The Passover lamb that saved the Israelites from the angel of death is Christ, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, John 1, 29. The manna that fell from heaven when they were in the wilderness is Christ, the bread of life, John 6, 35. The tabernacle where God met with the people of Israel is Christ, the one who put on flesh and tabernacled among us, John 1.14. The rock that gave him the water in the wilderness was ultimately the spiritual rock that we drink from in Christ himself, 1 Corinthians 10.3. And Moses the one who was born a savior, the one who became a prophet to Pharaoh, the one who was a mediator between God and the people, that points to the true and better Moses, Christ, savior, prophet, mediator of us today. But that's just the low-hanging fruit. If we zoom out and look at Exodus from 30,000 feet, it's actually a paradigm of our salvation as a whole. Think about what the Heidelberg Catechism question number two says. What must you know to live and die in the joy of this comfort, in the joy of this salvation? What must you know? Three things. First, how great my sin And misery are. Secondly, how I am set free from my sins and my misery. And thirdly, how I am to thank God for such deliverance. Those three things, misery, deliverance, and gratitude, form the framework of our salvation. Think about the book of Romans. Chapters 1 through 3 tell us of our misery. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 
Then you get into chapters 4 through 11, and it speaks about our deliverance. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then chapters 12 through 16 tells us what's our required response, that we would live a life of gratitude and obedience. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So that paradigm, misery, deliverance, and gratitude is found in Romans. But guess what? It's also found in Exodus, in story form. What do we open up with in the book of Exodus? The misery of slavery. That's a picture of our bondage to sin. What then happens? Moses, this Picture of Christ comes in and he delivers the children of Israel out of Pharaoh's land, Satan, and from the chains of of slavery, which is sin. And then what do we see at the end of the book? We see gratitude as God gives them the Ten Commandments that they may obey him, that he would be their God and that they would be his people. So how do we apply this here? Well, first of all, we need to be careful that we don't conclude that just because we are in the Old Testament that we somehow are not going to see the Savior on Sunday mornings for a while. Beloved, you are going to be confronted with Christ on every page of this book. Christ is all over Exodus. That's why Jesus said, Moses wrote of me. The second thing we need to ask is, where are we in this story? Where do we find ourselves in Exodus? We're going to be very tempted as we go through this book to scoff and and roll our eyes at the stupidity of the Israelites. Because again and again, they murmur, they complain, they make idols They doubt that God can provide for them. And nearly all of this happens after God does the ten plagues and splits the sea. But here's the thing. If we wag our fingers at Israel for their ungrateful, idolatrous, murmurous hearts, we are accusing ourselves. Loved ones, we're not the heroes in this story. We are the Israelites. They they are a mirror of us. Yes, it's true that we celebrate like them sometimes on the banks of the Red Sea when they're celebrating the, the, the deliverance of God. Yes, it's true that there are times when we give generously like they did in the, in the building of the tabernacle. But there are other times where we are exactly like them, faithless, thankless, idolatrous, just like them. And Exodus should humble us. We should come here week after week just humbled. We are seeing a story of ourselves. Thirdly, we then need to celebrate the grace of God in Exodus. God delivered Israel, saved them in Exodus 15. And then he gave them the law in Exodus 20. What does that mean? Saved in Genesis 
Exodus 15, law in Exodus 20. What does that mean? It means that God did not say, you know what? I'll save you when you obey. God's not saying, I'll save you when you obey. He's saying, I've already saved you. You're mine. Now follow me. God loved Israel while they were still sinners. He saved them while they were still sinners. He fed them, gave them drink while they were still sinners. And beloved, that is the grace that is held out to you again this morning. Yes, you are a sinner. Yes, you have broken God's law. But don't get the gospel backwards. Don't try to earn your freedom from guilt and shame and sin. If you're in Christ, you're already free. If the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. And now you get to follow Him. That's your great privilege now. Don't wallow in your failure. Get up on your feet, shake off the guilt of your sin with repentance, and march on. There's more failures coming. What are you going to do then? Let Exodus teach you. You're already free. Pharaoh, the devil, has been defeated. The chains of your sin no longer define who you are. Repent and move on. Look to Christ and move on. Finally, God and his glory. Our fifth axiom is that the ultimate aim in Exodus is God's own glory which is the only thing that will satisfy us. The ultimate aim in Exodus is God's own glory, which is the only thing that will satisfy us. I used to go to a lot of uh, concerts in my grunge days. Um, and, And I think it's probably how concerts work today, right? There's always like an opening act. And sometimes that act was good. Sometimes. But most of the time, it was like, come on, let's just get on with the main show. What's the main show in Exodus? It's not Moses. It's not even the miracles. It's what's behind Moses. It's what's behind the miracles. It's the glory of God. It's the great feast in the book of Exodus. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 9. Verses 15 and 16. One of the things um, that we should definitely be curious about as we're opening up the book of Exodus is, is why did God take so long to deliver the children of Israel? Why 10 plagues? Why not just snap your fingers, Lord, and pull them out? Is, are you not God Almighty? And God specifically tells us why he took so long. Exodus 9, 15 and 16. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up, to show you my power, so that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. God multiplied plague after plague, not because he was trying to win a war of attrition with Pharaoh, God was the one that was hardening his heart, remember. 
God multiplied plague after plague after plague so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord, our God, Exodus 8.10. God summoned locusts and frogs and hail so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth, Exodus 9.14. God hardened Pharaoh's heart again after Israel left, after they were out, after they were in the clear. And then he turned and he said, go chase them down. Why did God have Pharaoh go chase the Israelites down? Exodus 14.4, I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. How? By the parting of the sea and by its collapsing and destroying the Egyptian army. That is God's aim in this book. To show, that, to show the whole earth that there is no one more powerful, no one more holy, no one more righteous, no one more wise than the true and living God. And here's the most delightful thing about God's glory is that it is the deepest longing of our souls. I know this about every single one of you in this room. I know what you long for more than anything else. If you're a Christian, I know that there's a war between the spiritual nature and the sinful nature. But if you're a Christian, I know what you long for more than anything else. You long to dwell and to to live in the presence of the glory of God. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 33. This is the last place we're going. This is right after the golden calf incident. God is now dismissing them from Mount Sinai to go travel. God says in Exodus 33.3, Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. But I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned. Why was this a disastrous word? I will not go with you. Of course, this was to test the faith of Israel and Moses. God did go with them. But look what Moses was willing to sacrifice in order for for God to put his blessing upon him. Look at at verse 15. And he said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. In other words, Lord, we would rather be nomads in the desert than be without you. We would rather gather our food off the ground every day than to be without you in the land of milk and honey. If you're not going to lead us into the promised land, we don't want to go. There's no joy in the promised land if you are not with us. Moses was willing to give up every earthly pleasure in order to be near this glorious God. Why is that? Because of everything that we have seen this morning. Number one, this God is the author of history. He 
wrote you into the story. The reason why you're here this morning is because God wrote your name in the invisible decree to exist, and you exist. Number two, this God is Lord of every kingdom, every individual, every nation in the ancient world and in the modern world, and they must bow or perish. There's no one ultimate. There's no one above him. Number three, this God is a covenant keeper. If he has made a promise to you, if you've latched onto that promise by faith, you can never be lost. You have an eternity of everlasting life, of everlasting joy, of pleasures at the right hand of God forevermore. Number four, this God demonstrated his love to you in that while you were still sinners, he sent his son so that you could be set free. This God is incomparable. There's no one like our God. Beloved, this is the God who is there. And if you know and believe and cling to this God by faith, then you will be relieved of 10,000 problems down here. You will be able to look at the future and laugh and laugh. Let's pray. What a picture. 